episode 21 of the Triathlete Hour, we talked to Canadian pro Cody Beals. The Ironman Montreblanc course record holder is all about radical transparency. He gets super real with us here about how much money he makes and how much he's not making right now during the pandemic, how he's dealt with disordered eating and mental health issues, how he won Ironman Montreblanc on 17 hours of training a week, and how he goes to bed at midnight, 1 a.m., The up-and-coming pro has made a name for himself with his honesty, and he doesn't hold back here. Which is also why we thought it would be super interesting to bring in an endurance sports agent to talk to us about some of these numbers and budgets getting thrown around. So to kick off the episode, we chat with Chris Douglas of Presidio Sports Management about good contracts, bad contracts, if pro triathletes can make any money, and what the future looks like. It's a very illuminating episode, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Don't forget to subscribe to Triathlete Magazine on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you listen, so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. You don't want to miss anything we have coming. Subscribe to Triathlete Magazine on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts to get all of our latest right in your feed. Along with the Triathlete Hour, which features interviews with key figures in the sport, we have a bi-weekly training podcast, Fitter and Faster, which tackles tough training questions to get you fitter and faster. And we'll soon be launching a gear podcast to dive into all of your equipment questions. Plus, you can get the audio from all our Triathlete Live shows, where readers are able to ask big names their own questions. All that on our Triathlete Magazine podcast feeds on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and SoundCloud. Keep listening. Well, this week I'm welcoming Chris Douglas of Swim Run Fame. Actually, like you write our Swim Run column on this on Triathlete, you have a Swim Run podcast, uh, but that's not actually why we have you here this week. Because you know, in your real life, you're also the head of Presidio Sports Management, run like agents uh, as an agent for athletes, brands, companies, that kind of thing. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so obviously, first big question: Is there more money in Swim Run or Triathlon, Chris? <laughs> uh, there's very little money in either, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. It is it is like fighting over crumbs right now, right? That's how it works. Yeah, it's it's tough. I think uh sort of as a general proposition, bigger sports they're they're well much better organized that have tend to be Olympic sports, usually have um sort of a pipeline for people to develop a professional class even if you look at snowboarding you know someone gets identified as talented at age 13 14 there's a panel of sponsors that show up you know whether it's subaru shibani a snowboard sponsor goggle sponsor apparel sponsor and then they're kind of just set up for success but you don't really see that that much in sort of individual sports obviously team sports where there's collective bargaining you get a little bit more protection that way but for the most part, individual athletes, triathletes, runners are just completely on their own. So it's it's tough. Right. So at Presidio Sports Management, I mean, you do a lot of negotiating contracts for individual runners, triathletes. I know you kind of moved away from that even because it is just hard, yeah. right? It's hard to do. It's hard to make money on. Um, yeah. 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 It's, just, it's just sort of the scales of things, right? Like unless you're negotiating for a shoe contract or a triathlon, you know, like a bike sponsorship or something like that the ancillary sponsorships like eyewear socks 
there's just not a lot of money in, in eyewear and socks. Like maybe you're getting them for free. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard to sort of have that be a sole practice of the business. And, and over the years, we've been doing less sort of active athlete representation where we're sort of prospecting for sponsors. And what we do now is just someone identifies a sponsor and we basically just jump in and help negotiate it to try to get them the best the best deal that they can and then just kind of peace out after that. And what kind of, I mean, so we have Cody Beals on today and he talks a lot about his budget and his contracts, but what kind yeah. of contracts can triathletes see? Like how many people in the world are signing cash, you know, base salary deals? I think, I think very few. I think there's a, there's a lot of people that have a nice panel of sponsorships that are for the most part only getting product hmm. and maybe some performance incentive, but in terms of being like a salaried compensated, like what you typically think of as a sponsored athlete, um, I think that's few and far between. And you probably have, you know, like the one percenters are doing really well and then everyone else is kind of just trying to scrape by and put something together. Right, right. I mean, since Cody told us that he is lucky enough to have a base salary, um, which is great. And I've heard, you know, from some people in the last couple of years, like they had base salaries, but those are going away now. And so they're yeah. heavily, pro like heavily bonus incentives. Now it's like heavily yep. structured to like how well you do, then you get money. Yeah, which which is it's it's not necessarily a terrible way to structure a contract if you're if it's laced with perform, with performance incentives that you've negotiated uh, and you're doing really well, then you can essentially be betting on yourself. I think where it gets tough is, you know, like the age we're living in now, an <laughs> age of COVID. If you I can't race, if you can't go to Kona and try to get a podium slot to get your ten grand bonus or whatever it is. What do you do? You're essentially left with nothing. And I've seen so many contracts over the years where, you know, athletes will show these things to me and I'll just, I mean, they're just, they're ridiculous. They're totally not in the, in the athlete's best interest. Um, I mean, it's just, it's just really bad. Like I would never, I would pretty much tell people like they just shouldn't sign these things hmm. and like we should just punch whoever, whoever <laughs> sent them over because it'll just be, you know, I, well, I'll, let me just say, I think there's some basic things that should be in any athlete contract. Okay that should be negotiated. One of those things should be, there should be some compensation. Uh, you know, that's depending on the brand and whatever else, but there should also be a stipend for travel expenses so that you can actually get to races. It doesn't help you if you're getting a sponsorship for like 10 grand, but your travel expenses are 25 grand. Um, then you're almost like, you're, you, if you don't win a race and hopefully there's a decent prize purse, then maybe you can break even. Right. Um, so that's problematic. I think, um, a lot of these contracts have clauses for days of service where, you know, let's say you have, I don't know, specialized as your sponsor and there's 10 days in the contract that say that you have to be available to go to trade shows or go do meet and greets or whatever it is. All those days should be compensated. Um, this is like a little pro tip, like <laughs> no athlete should be doing that for less than $500 a day. And that's including travel days. So if they want you to go to Eurobike or something like the day that you're traveling out there, that should count. And every day that you have a service day, that should be compensated. Um, a lot of these contracts also have like kind of weird clauses that can be, well, let me take a step back from that. I think other things that I would, that I like contracts to have would be um, things like health insurance. Well, that would be nice. Um, yeah. Funds for physio uh -huh. and coaching, right? Like if, if a brand really wants you to perform your best and they're essentially investing in you, 
part of that should be to pay for coaching, which can be pretty expensive if you don't have some sort of hookup or some relationship already. And there's a pretty good example. So Tracksmith, which is a running brand out of Boston, um, they're essentially hiring some of their sponsored athletes in, into employees. their marketing department yeah, yeah. as employees, mm-hmm. which is which I think I think they're definitely leading the way on a lot of stuff. But that's essentially what sponsored athletes are. They're an extension of marketing. And if if someone wants to offer you a contract, it's because they see some value. And I think athletes can do themselves a favor by making sure they're always working on their own personal brands, engaging in brand building, putting out content. Um, you know, some of, some of it doesn't have to be like Lionel, like Lionel Sanders, where he's just like, here's an hour video of me in a pain cave, staring at a wall. <laughs> you don't you know, have to like buy your own drone, right. To make <laughs> exactly. your videos. Okay. <laughs> um, but you know, people know who he is and, mm-hmm. and he's, uh, he has a personality, right. So, so, so those, so those are things that I wish would be in there more. Um, I think there are some clauses that athletes should always look at just to make sure one of those would be like an ex- exclusivity clause hmm. where if you're signing a shoe sponsorship, you get, want to make sure that that doesn't include apparel head right. to toe. Cause that, that might limit your options for other sponsors. Um, like if you have an apparel sponsor and then let's say you get Roka that also makes apparel, like how does that work? Um, and that just has to be communicated so that you're not violating a key term of your, of your agreement. Um, Another thing would be rights of first refusals. So those clauses typically give your current sponsor an opportunity to keep you on a contract by matching whatever offer you might be receiving at the end of your deal. Um, And this, so I'll give you an example that's totally bonkers for triathlon (laughs) world. But um, in 2014, Kevin Durant, his contract was up with Nike. I mean, I think he was, was like a $60 million contract or something. And Under Armour basically offered him everything. I think it was close to like, 300 million over 10 years or just some a huge deal right but nike because they had a right of first refusal they were like that's really nice we'll just match it and now you'll stay with nike so they essentially signed them for a 10-year extension huh obviously those numbers are totally bonkers right i don't think that happens in trail i don't think even yon (laughs) is getting that yeah exactly exactly but kevin durant he was pretty much stuck like he couldn't say no right? right because on the contract he signed he basically was forced to stay with nike so, you know, it's not bad when it's 300 million, but if it's something smaller and you have an opportunity for growth and maybe get a way better sponsor, let's say you're going from a shoe sponsor that doesn't have cash to one that's going to give you a lot of cash. Let's say you're going from like Nike to Hoka or something like that. Um, you know, Nike could essentially screw you if they wanted to. Um, and, uh, you know, if, 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 if they won't let you leave or they'll have like a clause, another clause is problematic is they'll have like an option. Um, so it'll be like a three-year contract with an option for a fourth mm-hmm. and it's basically on them. So let's say you get an awesome contract and at the end of that third year, they'd be like, actually, we're going to keep you for, for the peanuts that we've been paying you. And you, you really don't have a choice on that. Huh. I think, okay. um, another clause that's important would be making sure you look at your early termination injury, injury clauses in your contract, like early termination, those things could look like you have a doping violation or something like that. That's pretty standard in contracts that you have to make sure you follow all the rules, but right. I know people will often get dropped. Um, you know, even if they're found to be like not at fault or something, if they have a doping violation, they usually get dropped by. Yeah. Like uh, what happened, I'm forgetting her name, but she was taking like CBD Mm -hmm. and it came up Lauren. Yeah. So it turned out there was some THC in there and she, she pretty much got, got screwed there. Um, but on the termination side, I think the contracts where contracts can get really, 
really sketchy would be terminations due to injury. Hmm. So most contracts state that if an athlete is unable to perform or race for a certain period of time, let's say 60 to 180 days, sponsors are allowed to terminate the sponsorship. I think Nike got a lot of heat from this when they were basically dumping women that had children. Right. Um, you know, it's like not cool, right? But but hey, the contract said they could dump them and they weren't providing them with any sort of marketing collateral. So they um, so they were able to do that because that's what the contract says. And I think a lot of these contracts um, are open for negotiation. And I think a lot of athletes don't do themselves a favor by, you know, either being super stoked what they're being offered and not trying to see if what they're what they're doing for themselves is actually helping the sport or helping themselves. I think you see that in trail in, in running a lot where you're so excited to get a contract, you're essentially driving the value down for everyone else because you're not negotiating for what you're worth. Oh, um, interesting. Okay. And because no one really knows what they're worth because they don't really talk about it. It becomes really difficult for athletes to really know what their value actually is. Yeah, you were saying there yeah. was a lot of uh, non-disclose. Um, I mean, there's going to be more and more public, inf- more and more transparency, especially in triathlon. Like I hear people's contract numbers all the time. Cody certainly talks about it on mm-hmm. the podcast, like people are putting more and more mm-hmm. numbers out there. Um, but a lot of times there's non-disclose agreements. So it makes it hard even among pros to talk to each other, much less like yeah. new pros who don't know what they're getting into. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's hard to compare apples to apples. Mm-hmm even based on just results, like you could have two triathletes that are neck and neck and one person might be making 10 times what the other person's making just because of the way the contracts were negotiated. Um, and that just, you know, it seems unfair on its face. And I think it's also a disservice to the sport, right? Like if, if triathlon is going to grow and the way it's grown in the past is by having a pretty healthy pro field, pro class of athletes that people want to emulate and triathlon is amazing because, you know, I remember doing a race where Crowey was, was right. just, you know, on the same course. It's just like, it's kind of an amazing feeling to be able to basically do the exact same course as the pros. For sure. But if, if events are, are more interested in just stacking, stacking dollars from age groupers, um, you know, you, you could have a problem where, you know, brands don't see the value in supporting a professional class because they're just, they're getting whatever they feel like they're getting in terms of revenue from activating with a, with a race or activating with, Mm. you know, different types of events, which is interesting because now with COVID, I think a lot of that stuff is up in the air. For sure. I was going to ask you, because I mean, I'm hearing just, you know, there are a ton of pros who, because contracts are so, at least in triathlon are so bonus heavy. So like prize, Mm -hmm. like podium incentive heavy, all the time people yep. are losing out on like half their income this year. And you're seeing like, especially on the up and comers who often sign contracts with no base salary, they're mm-hmm. making no money. And then you're seeing yep. some of the people who are a little further along be like, eh, screw it. Like, I'm just going to go ahead and retire. Like, I can't keep this up. I'm not making. And so I'm w- wondering how that's going to play out. You know, like what's happening going to happen yeah. next year, yeah. two years, five years. Um, yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. I think the sport, and like everything else in society, I think is at a turning point mm-hmm. and the decisions and that, that brands make and events make are really going to be a testament to sort of what values people are going to place as being important. So if you want to preserve a pro class and you're a brand, you should really be renegotiating these contracts and take into account that there aren't events and find ways to activate your athletes differently 
Um, it's not like people aren't buying shoes. I mean, last I heard, you can't even buy a kettlebell. In you, can't buy a you can't buy a bike. You can't buy a bike under a thousand dollars, like anywhere. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so, so it's not that people aren't purchasing sporting goods, and people are finding new ways to not be at the gym and be healthy and exercise and all this stuff. And I think brands, again, if they really care about supporting a professional class of athletes and ensuring that that's healthy and robust and you know, helps to grow the sport, which I think ultimately will help grow their, their profits at the end of the day. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to see them taking into account the fact that there's no races and find other things that they could do to activate their athletes, whether it's videos or what, I mean, whatever. Those there's are a lot of, of videos right now. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and then, and then some of it, and I think athletes need to do their part too, which is, you know, for every Jesse Thomas, who I think was, probably the world's greatest promoter <laughs> and you know of himself and he, he, he it was genuine and authentic and he was just a really cool dude he would answer everyone's emails and he just put himself out there as like a pro's pro um which is why he ha had a lot of endorsements i think for every jesse thomas there's you know i don't know how many people who are just hardcore pro triathletes and all they know how to do is like stare at a wall and you know, crush Watts. And right, I think right. there, there's some skill building that can happen there for them to generate their voice, social media presence, all these things, like put out some content that makes sense. Um, well, they're not necessarily not the same skill. I mean, this is something I've talked about yeah. with a bunch of pros is being mm -hmm. a good athlete is not the same skill as being a good influencer. Exactly. Um, and so those exactly. are, and they don't even overlap all the time. Like sometimes they're counter- right productive so right but it's something that can be learned right mm -hmm. like just just as you can learn to be a good public speaker i think you can learn to be good on social media you can learn how to take good photos and you there's all these things that you can do to help yourself so that when that opportunity presents itself to a brand an athlete is essentially just another marketing extension of their marketing department so what do you have that you can show the brand that is going to help them achieve what their goals are. And the more transparency you can have in what their goals are, whether it's just conversion, sales, whatever, um, the better that the two sides can be aligned. And typically those are the contracts that work the best because it's truly a partnership. Mm -hmm. And if the athlete sees himself as an extension of the brand and loves the brand and is repping the brand as best they can, and the brand is paying them well, I think, you know, that makes it for a happy marriage. I think where, where, you go down the road of passive aggression as let's say the contract is really crappy and you know, you submit your reimbursement receipts and you don't get <laughs> the money back for like six months. You know, I think it's stuff like that, that really just, you're essentially going to do the minimum and because your brand that's sponsoring you is doing the minimum. So, you know, again, to use another Jesse Thomas example, I think he, he DNF to the world championship or something like that. Right. And, he did a thing with Roca where he basically wore his kit on the plane right. and took all these pictures and stuff. And it was hilarious. I mean, and it was, it was so well done. It was just so funny um, that I think, you know, that was just a great example of a, of a relationship that he had with Roca that they came up with a really great way to sort of deal with what was ultimately like a poor performance on the, on the, on the course, but still, still turned it into something like, Hey, it's just a, just a race and you're still going to have some fun with it. And I think, I think if more brands thought that way and more athletes were willing to sort of engage in that sort of self-deprecating, right. <laughs> just being real, uh, activities, I, I think, you know, that would tend, 
I've, I've seen that lead to better sort of long, more long-term relationships with brands, I'd say. So here's my, my like big question for you. Cause I mean, you obviously work with a lot of athletes, you work with a lot of brands and right now is a really like, it's a slow time for business. Mm -hmm. I think, do you, mm -hmm. how do you think triathlon is going to come out of this? Do you think we're going to like adjust, grow, sign great content, you know, is the business of triathlon going to be healthy or, or not? Well, I think that's a good question. I think there's two answers to that and it kind of depends on the events themselves. I think trap like the Ironman circuit, pro circuit, I think there's a lot they can do to come out of this the other way, get on the other side and have it be really dynamic and encourage people to come out and just reinvigorate everyone's desire to do Ironman and 70.3s and things like that. I think, um, and I hope they do that. I hope whoever bought Iron Man is actually thinking about how to grow this in a way that isn't just about extracting resources. Right. That's like certainly a concern. Style. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but I think the other side on the sort of the age group local event side, I think that side is much more problematic because race directors, I mean, I, even Iron Man to some extent, all these events are crowdsourced just like you would on Indiegogo or whatever. Um, a lot of money goes into putting these events on that get spent way before the races. And if race directors aren't able to put events, aren't able to make any revenue, I think what you're going to see the longer uh, kind of COVID goes on, they're just going to be fewer events because race directors just aren't going to be able to stay in business. I think right. for the race directors that I work with, we um, do like marketing and, you know, operation stuff. Um, a lot of them are, are essentially not going to make it out of this alive. Right. Um, you know, as a business, I, I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm sure they'll survive, you know, hopefully, but, uh, right. But like, as a business, there's just no way to, if you're in the business of putting on events, and you can't put something on for six, seven, eight months, a year, it's just hard to, to kind of stay in the game on the other side. So I think one of the sad things might be a consolidation of events where you're not going to have the local events, which hmm. is like your first try is going to be, you know, whatever you already see some of the bigger events like wildflower i don't see those coming back anytime soon um the prestigious events like nautica malibu triathlon like that would be interesting if that one survives because that one's so dependent on on title sponsorship to right. even make it work so so yeah so i think i think it's tough and I, i'm really worried about it i think the iron man again the iron man side of things i think there's enough um They'll survive. Money. Yeah, there's, right. there's enough money there. And there's, I mean, the brand has such a, I mean, it's just synonymous with triathlon that I think if they want to come on the other side of this and really do something amazing, they can. It's just whether they're just going to just do business as usual and start putting on events again and just pretend like nothing happened or if they're actually going to try to transform and turn this into something better than what it was. And um, I hope it's the latter. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been hoping maybe because obviously we've seen a consolidation of events in the last five, 10 years like that already was happening. Mm -hmm. You already were like kind of losing mm -hmm. all those feeder events, smaller ones. I was hoping maybe mm -hmm. as smaller events are the first ones back in COVID, we might see a like grassroots local race renaissance because the only thing happening around here are like 200 person, 100 person yeah. trail, bike, run, right? Like random things that, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's all you can do right now. So Yeah, I mean, again, 
depending how long this goes, yeah. I think the likelihood of these small feeder events, which are some of the best triathlons, like mm-hmm. everyone remembers their first sort of local try where they put their helmet on backwards or whatever, <laughs> people, you know, running to the water, the wetsuit on inside out. I mean, all these things are so great. And it's like, that's the magic of triathlon. I th- I'm worried that the longer this goes, there's right. going to be fewer of those events, but hopefully, hopefully they'll survive. We'll see. You're just everyone. We've been telling everyone they just have to put on their own triathlons now. Just yeah. in your backyard, swim across that lake. <laughs> so yeah, well, that's that's kind of the beauty of swim run. You just need a lake, <laughs> a wetsuit, and a pair of shoes. So there you go. <laughs> swim run's coming back now. It's happening. Yep. Yep. It's happening. Well, thank you so much for talking to us, Chris, and uh, and for all of your insight on contracts. And I hope you know people found it interesting. I find it interesting. So. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This week, we're talking to Cody Beals, uh, three-time Ironman champ, up-and-comer, right? Uh, and Canadian. That's the key factor here. So how are the, how is the pandemic in Canada? How are you dealing with it? What have things been like? Oh, I'd say we're, we're scoring higher grades than our friends south of the border, <laughs> unfortunately for you guys. Um, things are going relatively well here. Um, relatively, of course. It's still been the major upheaval in all of our lives. Um, but... It's been day to day. My my response has been really different. I think if you talked to me last week, I would have had a much more negative slant on things. But this week, I'm feeling positive. I'm feeling in control. So maybe it's timely we're talking now. That's good. Yeah. Sometimes I talk to people and they're very down. It it goes up and down. I mean, you also had an amazing 2018, a great 2019. And so I would imagine you kind of came into this year thinking you had all this momentum. You did get to race, but you had a flat. So it's kind of... It sort of it feels a like it did it. Right? I think I've said in a few interviews, I haven't even got to race in 2020, which is factually wrong because it doesn't even feel like a race to me. You know, I traveled down to Mexico and had the flat tire and was actually coming off an illness, which I hope wasn't COVID. Oh, Although yeah. I suppose the silver lining would be I might have antibodies and be immune now. So I'm eagerly awaiting the antibody test when it's available in Canada because I had just a terrible respiratory illness in February huh. and a potential exposure route as well. So um, we'll see. <laughs> Oh, no. Well, at least you I hear some people it takes them forever to recover. So you're you're back to training, it seems like. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was hacking, hacking up weird colors of stuff for a month. But um, yeah, things are good now. <laughs> all right. All right. But yeah, you obviously didn't get to carry that momentum into this year, um, which I imagine is like a little bit of a downer. Obviously, everyone thinks this year was going to be their year now that nobody has a race. But oh. yeah, I'd be I'd be three Ironman victories in by now. You know, it goes without saying. <laughs> <laughs> No, I am. I was really, I was hungry after 2019. I think 2018 was a great season for me. It was a real breakthrough. I had five wins. 2019 was really up and down. I had the first injuries in my career. Uh, I had the performance of my life, breaking the course record in Mont-Tremblant, and then had, on the other end of the spectrum, a complete disastrous debut at Kona, where pretty much everything went wrong. Um, so that was the note I ended my season on in October, and I ended my season kind of prematurely in retrospect. I wished I'd kept racing later in the year because I was still fit, I was still hungry, but my plan all along was to set my sights on really having a strong front end of the season in 2020. But obviously, things didn't unfold that way. <laughs> yeah, like, well, um, let's talk about that breakout 2018 year. Obviously, I know it's the kind of thing everyone talks to you about, but it was pretty crazy. I mean, you debuted your pro Ironman at Montremblant and won. And then you won Chattanooga, what was it, two weeks later, three, well, like shortly thereafter. Six weeks after, Six yeah. Six weeks after. I was adding that up, and I was thinking when those races are. You won, you won 
back to back to back races that year. It's got to be hard after that kind of season. Like, where do you go from there? It was really hard. It, it really reframed my entire relationship with the sport and maybe counterintuitively, like not in a positive way. So <laughs> it, it, it suddenly I felt like all this pressure and all this burden of expectation and the business side of the sport. I mean, the, the positive side was suddenly I was getting bigger contracts and it was really exciting. But there was a lot more expectation to deliver, not just on the race course, but also on social media and other aspects of the sport that have really ramped up over the course of my career. So suddenly I couldn't pretend it was this glorified hobby anymore. It was like the real deal. It was the big leagues. And I can't say I really responded to that pressure very well. Um, So that was partly reflected in my struggles in 2019. And I would even trace uh, the illness and the subsequent injury I had back to just not handling the pressure of, of 2018 very well. What does that look like when you say like pressure? Was it just like too many demands on your time? Too much? What kind of social media demands requests are they asking of you? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I have like a dream team with sponsorship. I can't fault them at all, of course. Um, it's just I'm, I'm really bad at saying no. I'm an inherently people pleasing person. And it's really gratifying suddenly when you have sponsors and media and everyone asking for content and a piece of you, basically. And at first it's really cool, but quickly um, it kind of wore me thin, I found. And I wasn't really working with an agent at that time, so I was fielding all this myself, and I was replying to DMs across like umpteen different social media platforms, which I've since stopped doing. Uh, and I was just spending like an inordinate amount of time at my desk rather than training and racing and recovering. So I think I, I've heard this from a lot. I think this is a, a commonality among a lot of different industries. Once you've had some success, the trajectory is that you stop doing what drew you to it in the first place, what drew you to that career in the first place, and you get more shunted into like an administration type role. Right. I thought I might be immune to that as a professional <laughs> athlete, but but no, like it suddenly became more of a desk job than actually being an athlete. So this year I made some changes. I'm going to make more changes, in fact, um, and I'm really trying to distill things back down to the basics, training, racing, recovery, because ultimately, you know, the fork in the road was that I'm not in this to be a good businessman. I'm in this to be the best athlete I can be. Okay. Okay. I, yeah. You hear that from a lot of pros that they have to manage like the business half of it and then the being an athlete half of it. And those aren't necessarily the same skills, right? At all. No, the two aren't totally mutually exclusive, um, but they definitely cut into one another. And uh, Kona is a great illustration of that. I'm sure we'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. But you see some of the best performers in Kona, they're largely invisible the week and the month leading up to the race. They'll do like a token number of commitments, but they're pretty much telling everyone to screw off and they're laying low. Um, that was not me. I was the guy who was like baking at the expo every day, <laughs> doing the rounds and stuff and talking to everyone. And uh, yeah, I was like, you wouldn't know I was a seven year professional triathlete. I was like a complete rookie there. <laughs> I was going to ask you, okay, what your mistakes were, what you learned from Kona, because your debut Kona was this past fall. And I mean, that was your like, it's not like you ever did it as an age grouper, right? Like that was your first time. No. Yep, First and time on the island. You wrote a whole blog about mistakes you made and lessons you've learned. So why don't you tell us what did you do wrong? And, uh, and what would you do differently? Sure. So, I mean, if you fast forward eight weeks, I was coming off my win at Mont Tremblant. I went under eight hours there. I didn't even think that would be possible. I was just on cloud nine. I was obviously super fit. All I needed to do was kind of just ice the cake in the words of my coach at the time. And somehow I managed to completely tear things apart in eight weeks. Uh, so mistake number one, I got I got too light. That's something a lot of people do. It's, it's been in my history. I have a history with disordered eating. I'm well aware of that. I thought I was on the ball with that. And uh, suddenly, you know, I didn't weigh myself for a couple of weeks and I dropped like almost five pounds. I couldn't afford huh. to lose. Then I got sick as a direct result of that um, and kind of blew a huge hole in my training, which should have been the important finishing prep. So that wasn't a great lead up. Apart from that, um, I was getting, after having won my first three Ironmans, uh, Thorsten, the statistician in triathlon and all kinds of other rankings were, were, you know, citing my name among like the other top contenders in Kona. And that was like otherworldly to be talked about in the same breath as some of these guys who've been multiple times top 10 or even podium at Kona. 
I felt like I wanted a free pass to kind of just go there and learn the ropes and stuff. And people were coming up to me and like earnestly telling me like, Cody, I just know you're going to, you're going to be on the podium this year. You're even going to win. And I internalized that pressure in such a negative way, even though it was like ultimately a really positive thing. So that was mistake number two, dealing with the pressure poorly. Mistake number three, I would say was, um, you know, not saying no as much like saying, saying yes to basically everything during race week. And the last mistake, I do all my own work on my bike, which is usually great. I'm kind of compulsive about that. I don't let anyone touch my bike. Uh, but I made a really stupid mistake, which resulted in a mechanical um, near the turnaround in the Queen K. So I, I went to turn around at the Queen K and barely could steer my bike. And basically huh. that ended my race. Huh. Um, but if I'm honest, that's kind of like what I talk about after the race. I had the mechanical. Um, if I'm honest, I didn't set myself up for a great performance in any case. So it was um, a strange coincidence that just as I was realizing it wasn't going to be my day, this mechanical hit. Yeah, it's uh, it's always interesting how that happens, right? Sometimes you feel, sometimes you feel like the pros they have mechanicals when their day is not going well, right? <laughs> yeah, and so people alluded to that actually, and I, I kind of like lost my, uh, flipped out after the race when someone accused me of of making up this mechanical. And I mean, I don't want to throw sponsors under the bus or reflect poorly on them, my equipment sponsors, because it wasn't their fault. So I didn't go into details about it. So I made this weird post, kind of hand wave the explanation that I had a unspecified mechanical, I called it or something. And yeah, you know, I don't have a PR team around me. This is like me coming back to my hotel room after frying on the Queen K for eight hours, limping my way back, really emotional day. And then I have to put something out there on social media and it's not always perfect, right? (laughs) (laughs) You're like, yeah, I feel like that may not be the case for some of the uh, bigger names. I think they have a team around them. Yeah. And that's kind of the point I'm at. It's an interesting point where like, I'm, I'm not obviously not raking it in, you know, it's still middle-class money at this point. And I've been very transparent about that in the budget posts on my blog, but yeah, it's at the point where I could justify hiring a part-time manager, agent, administrative person, basically. And I'm considering it really seriously because as much as I love the, the business side of the sport, it does erode the time and energy I can put into the, the fundamentals of training, racing, and recovery like I was talking about earlier. Yeah, for sure. You actually, I gotta say, the first time I think you ever popped onto my radar was your budget blog post because they were getting shared all around the internet. Everybody was like, look, this pro triathlete's like breaking down how much he doesn't make because that was the that was kind of the other yeah, line. That's the right? <laughs> What inspired you? Yeah, I was gonna say what inspired you to do that? That was the first content piece to kind of put me on the map. I was putting a lot of energy into these like feature length blog posts, which I've kind of moved away from. And I didn't think many people would read that. Um, I just thought it was a bit of a curiosity. And it really blew up. It got shared really widely. And I've done that every year except for last year. Um, So the first five years of my pro career. And and I've always been like a really analytical data, data driven person. So I was collecting all this data. And I thought, why not put it out there? Basically, my thinking was that how can I set myself apart as a professional triathlete? How can I make myself marketable to sponsors, interesting to fans? And, you know, guys with my results are, I won't say a dime a dozen, but there's, you know, at least 20 odd professional triathletes in the world with my resume in terms of results are better. Um, I wouldn't say I'm like the, I'm not crushing it on social media. So what can I do? Well, I, I thought I could be really transparent, like radically transparent. So I shared everything from, you know, my history with disordered eating and coming out and mental health related subjects to, all my power data and training data, like 16 weeks of my training leading to my first Ironman win, which is pretty much unprecedented for a pro to share. Um, even like things like my blood work and of course my finances. So that was a natural extension of all that transparency to take it a step further and open up my bank account to the world basically. What did you learn from that? On the one hand, I remember reading it and being like, I don't know if I need this much detail to know that pro triathletes don't make that much money. <laughs> but what did you learn? What, like, Did you feel like it, it helped you? It, it definitely helped me. Yeah. Um, it, it really emphasized that to hack it at this at this career, you need to be pretty frugal. You need to be a minimalist. You can't be running, 
you know, 50% of your revenue back into expenses, basically. So I've always, I'm proud of the fact that even from my first season, I generated a, a very small profit. So from the, from the get-go, I was doing better than break-even, and that was very calculated. And part of that was having some success right away and, you know, really, really hit, hammering the pavement with sponsorship and getting some race results and getting a bit of prize money. But the most important side of that and the often neglected side, I think, was keeping expenses really lean, hmm. not just, you know, pinching pennies in terms of travel and equipment and all that, but also just as a general lifestyle, being frugal, being a minimalist, having a small house well within my means. And that's even extended to this year with the pandemic. I was already kind of eyeing bigger houses. Now I bought my first house a few years ago and I was already getting the itch to just not settle with where I'm at and, you know, kind of climb up the ladder, I guess. And I'm really grateful. This has reaffirmed all these values I needed to be reacquainted with because I'm so glad now that my income's taken a 40 or 50% hit this year. It's still a joke to afford my modest little semi-detached house in Guelph, Ontario. Yeah, I could see that. If you had uh, bought the bigger house, you might be uh, not happy about that right now. You'd have oh, more man. space. So yeah. <laughs> um, you also, I mean, you said you, you just named a whole bunch of things you went into a lot of detail on in your blog. And I know that what you've said in the past is that you go into really deep detail with questions people bring to you or like common misconceptions. Do you get, what are the questions that people come to you at? Do you get a lot of people saying, hey, Cody, I don't know how to make it work as a pro. Tell me like how you do it. Yeah. So some of the ones I've tackled, we talked about budget. Um, another one I talked about recently this year was um, fueling and eating. And I came at it from the angle of, look, I had this disordered relationship with food. It resulted in REDS, relative energy deficiency in sport, and this diagnosable syndrome that really screwed up my life for the better part of a decade and almost ended my career prematurely. So the narrative is often like, oh, pro triathletes, they starve themselves. They don't eat very much. They don't eat carbs or just crazy ideas. Totally doesn't align with my experience and my my uh, my path in the sport, nor the people who I who I've trained with and stuff. Just observing how they do things. So I put a blog post out there showing what I do eat in the day and how crazy it is compared to what most people eat, and um, basically how the normal rules don't apply if you're someone who's burning in excess of 5,000 calories a day, training 20 plus hours a week. So that was one misconception I dispelled. Um, another one I think is this idea that everyone's training like 30 plus hours a week. I put it out there that. My two Ironman wins um, and Mont-Tremblant, I trained less than 20 hours uh, average in the 16 weeks leading up to both of them. So I thought that was kind of remarkable. Um, maybe not that exceptional, but if you listen to what other pro triathletes are saying, it certainly doesn't sound to be the norm. I, I think people this, miss that though. <laughs> yeah, I have this theory that everybody like rounds up when they ask someone asks them about hours. They like count their four-hour ride and their 30-minute coffee break as a five-hour ride, you know? You're, you're spot on. <laughs> it's, uh, the joke is, yeah, your biggest swim week plus your biggest bike week plus your biggest run week add your massages and your dog walking and then bump it up 10% for good measure. That's right. your average training rep representative week. <laughs> it's bogus. It's all bogus. <laughs> good to know. Okay. And, um, yeah, the, the disordered eating is interesting because I was actually thinking about that. How do you manage? And you mentioned this is one of the mistakes you made in Kona. The fact that we are like a power to weight sport, but also you, you know, you don't want to get back into a disordered eating habit. You don't want to like go back down that pathway. Like, do you just keep really close track? Like, how do you do that? No, I, I did go through the exercise of tracking everything really carefully for a while, working with the dietitian, and it was really illustrative just of the fact that I have to eat way more than I realized. I've always huh. felt like my appetite's a couple sizes too small for my activity level. Maybe all those years of under eating kind of recalibrated things a little bit. I don't know. Um, but I've never been able to put away as much food as some of my peers in one sitting. So I kind of have to snack all the time. So um, it's been maybe counterintuitive, but the pattern of my career has actually been relaxing my attitude towards food. So I used to have a really orthorexic kind of relationship towards food where I had a very clear list of what was good and bad foods. Now, literally anything goes. In fact, <laughs> I make a point when I go shopping. I just bought 
eight Reese's Pieces bars the other day when I went shopping because I'm seeing some veins pop right now that have no reason popping at this time of year, you know? So I literally need to load up my shopping cart with like tempting palatable foods, which most people would consider junk. And keep in mind, that might be only 10% of my diet, but when you're burning 5,000 calories a day, you have a lot of leeway to just fill up on junk just to meet those calorie numbers, you know? And I also need to underscore the fact that carbohydrates are a fundamental part of my diet. There's no macromolecule that I'm excluding. Fat, protein, carbs, it's all really important. Carbs are just the essence of my diet though. Like more often than not, when I'm training poorly, when my mood's low, when something's going wrong, it's because I haven't been hitting the carbs hard enough. That's like Mm. my go-to solution at first. And reasons, isn't that supposed to be the first thing you do? Like if you feel like you want to quit, have a gel and then see how you feel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's an amazing ability to lift your mood in an Ironman. (laughs) You are obviously very, very science-based, very data-driven. That's what you thought you were going to do with your life, right? I mean, you studied physics at Queen's University. Like, you were going to go into academia, research. This is not academia, research. Why triathlon instead? Oh, man. Like, my life took such a hard left (laughs) compared to the 18-year-old me had, like, this whole plan mapped out. I was going to be getting a physics PhD by now and maybe teaching or something. I don't even know. Um... The lesson from that was stop trying to foresee what's going to light my fire in the next five years, let alone the next two even. So uh, yeah, I wasn't a super athletic kid, but I, I dabbled in sports. Academics were the focus. I always thought that would be the driver of my career. And uh, after I graduated, though, wasn't a standout athlete in university or high school by any stretch, but swam, biked, and ran. And after I graduated, I gave myself a year to pursue triathlon, and uh, it really took off. And I think I was a late bloomer for a lot of reasons. Triathlon is obviously a sport where Men and women don't tend to peak until their late 20s or 30s in long course. Um, so it takes a long time to achieve mastery of three sports and all that aerobic development. But I think also for me, I was really hampered by my struggles with under eating and, and uh, reds and mental health as well in university. So I think I could have been a much better varsity athlete, had a much more impressive career if, if I had addressed those things a lot sooner. So I think part of the reason I was a late bloomer was that it took me you know, well into my 20s to get all those things squared away. And it's only been over the last couple of years where I feel like um, I'm on a stable footing in terms of all those variables. And that's been reflected in, you know, winning my first three Ironmans, I think. Right. Like getting, dealing with all that stuff outside of training makes it easier to, you know, do the training. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's impossible to train race at your best if the rest of your life isn't in order and especially your physical and mental health. Yeah. I mean, mental health with athletes is something that's like more and more people are talking about now. Obviously it's a really hot topic right now. There's like a whole HBO documentary. Um, what do you what how have people responded when you've talked about like your issues with mental health, your issues with like the stress, the the pressure, everything? Um, very positively, but I've always been a little apprehensive. Like I, I never want to come across as as whining about my career. Um, it is a really challenging career, but I think a lot of people have a very glamorized, romanticized view of what it means to be a pro triathlete. It's it's a real it's a real grind a lot of the time. But I also recognize what a privilege it is. Like I'm so grateful to be able to swim, bike, and run every day. It's awesome. Um, that said, it has some really unique challenges. And so I have to be careful about how I frame any discussion about, you know, the mental health and physical health perils of my career, because some people just see it as, uh, you know, they're very, they're very jealous of this career that I've been able to have. And it can, it can kind of rub people the wrong way, I think. That said, though, when I have been really open and transparent about my struggles with mental health, the responses have been, been really positive, you know, especially this year where I think unprecedented numbers of people are, are struggling with these things. Right. Um, I think people appreciate that. I, I really I resent that in our sport. On the pro side, I would say it's a fair criticism that pro triathletes are pretty bland and they only tend to put positive things out there. I think people assume the narrative always needs to be upbeat for sponsors. And it's telling that some of the posts that don't necessarily have a negative slant, but maybe are more real, get the best response that I've made, right. I'd say. 
Oh, definitely. I think I think more and more people are realizing that, right? Isn't that the whole like real talk hashtag? Yeah, yeah. I think that just reflects the evolution of social media over the last 10 years. It's still a really immature medium. And I've seen it evolve like quite rapidly over the course of my career, how people use it. Like going back at the beginning of my career seven years ago, it was like like blatant advertising would still kind of fly. Even the way sponsors are pushing marketing now, it's it's a lot more subtle. It's a lot more story driven. They're interweaving into the athlete's life, focusing on, on their stories rather than just these overt set marketing pieces, you know? Right, for sure. And obviously you haven't I mean, you mentioned it in passing a while ago about your blog, but you haven't really talked about it. Um, you also came out uh, as gay. I think you're one of the only male pro triathletes who's come out, who's openly out, right? At least to my knowledge. Uh, and I know that that, I mean, we just did a story about you. I know that that like really helped you also feel like more comfortable and what's the word? Healthy, clear, mm-hmm. not stressed. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It gets back to the point I made earlier about needing to have your own personal life in order to be at your best professionally. I think that goes for any career, especially at one as demanding as pro triathlon. So yeah, I came out of my personal life in 2015 at age 25, which feels unbelievably late now. Um, but it was a long process of you know soul searching and a cycle of denial and repression, I think. And um, eventually I was down in Texas of all places, <laughs> not the most welcoming people, uh, people for the LGBT community, although I was quite surprised in fact, I'll say. Um, so I was down there at this training camp and things just kind of came to a head abruptly and I realized that, wow, like at least a quarter of my life's already slipped by and I haven't, I haven't dealt with this yet. So came home and wasted no time coming out and, uh, got on with life. It was kind of a non-event. I feel tremendously privileged to, you know, be born when I was in a very progressive country in this part of the world, um, with a really supportive, nurturing group of people around me. And it's been uh, a non-issue in my life. I built it up to something far more... (laughs) self-important than it ever really was you're saying people were basically like yeah okay yeah and i mean I, my coming out wasn't like a big fanfare i didn't right. really post on social media or anything it was a much more understated thing but um it's it's still it still is an event in someone's life and a queer mm-hmm. person's life when they choose to come out to people and it's it never really ends it's a process it's on that's always ongoing so it's a constant series of decisions like if i'm at a training camp around new people and they ask if I have a girlfriend back home, do I choose, do I have to come out to them huh. then? Or how do I do this in a natural way? It always requires a bit of an input of energy, you know? Same right. goes for new sponsors. Like I, the thought process is, oh, have they seen my social media where I sometimes reference that? Do I have to explicitly come out to them? Will it be a problem? Um, so there's, it's always in the back of my mind, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. But it's largely been a non-issue in triathlon, which is totally awesome. People in our sport care a lot more about your personal bests and your, your sponsors and your attitude and stuff than your orientation or your politics or anything like that. For sure. Uh, definitely care more if you're, if you're doing really well and are interesting. Yeah, I, I would say. <laughs> so and you response has also been like really, really heartwarming too. And that was, that was one of the main drivers um, to make me more visible as an out person. So for years, since 2015, I really downplayed it, turned down overly gay sponsorship opportunities in a couple of cases, turned down a lot of interviews that wanted to focus on that. Um, but every time I dropped like a little tidbit about it, people were really, really um, receptive of that. And I got these amazing messages from queer people and their allies just thanking me for their visibility and, and telling me it was impactful and made them feel more at home in the sport. So that was the impetus behind me being a little bit more visible as a gay guy, um, not wanting to um, you know, profit off that or exploit it somehow for personal gain or sponsorship gain or anything like that. So, yeah, you feel like people I mean, it seems like people obviously are very receptive of a lot of your, like, it's nice to know someone else is struggling with mental health, struggling with, like, their finances, with eating, with coming out, all these things. I think it probably makes you more approachable, right? That's the word I've heard, yeah. And that's, <laughs> what I, that's what I strive for. I'm trying to keep it real, you know? It's not a sport where the pro athletes are elevated on some pedestal and 
made out like they're complete celebrities. It's just we're all starting on this. We're all towing the same start line at the end of the day. So I think that fundamental factor makes the pros in triathlon a lot more approachable than other sports. And uh, yeah, I, I love it. And I'm, I'm not unique in that regard. There's a lot of other pros leading the way as well. Oh, for sure. Um, and you kind of mentioned, so obviously you decided, okay, I'm not going to go to academia. I'm going to give this triathlon thing a try. And you did pretty well at first, but there was, you know, a long time between 2012, 2013 and your 2018 breakout year. How do you kind of keep at it? Ever? Like, what do you tell yourself all those years, like, while you're, you know, scraping by? Well, I, I set myself up in terms of my career and my life where I wasn't exactly scraping by. So I made a series of decisions. The first was going back to live with my parents after university. And I have I don't regret that at all. There's no embarrassment around that. It was a brilliant decision. It set me up to pursue my career without a lot of financial stress. You know, I paid them rent, but it was a good arrangement for everyone and um, set me up to buy my first house. I also kept a consulting job in science after I graduated which was very flexible, allowed me to work from home. So that was a really enviable position for someone pursuing the sport. I think when I when I consult or advise with younger athletes wanting to get into elite triathlon, I tell them to try and remove um, the financial pressure if there's any way to do that. So ideally, I'd say you aren't in a situation where you have a nine to five job and then you abruptly have to leave that cold turkey and pursue triathlon full on. That's a really stressful, high stakes environment. I've seen that work for some athletes. Uh, I won't name names, but I've seen some athletes who respond tremendously well to financial pressure. You know, their spouse says, you got to make money this race or you're out of the sport and they deliver. That's that's not me. You know, I, I do not want that kind of extra pressure. There's enough um, internal pressure already without adding on external pressure like that. So my advice to aspiring for athletes is to try and find a minimalist lifestyle and a flexible career that's going to allow you to pursue triathlon. And ideally, you can you can kind of dial that career back as your triathlon career takes off. Okay, so that's like kind of how you but obviously, that's how you dealt with the financial part. But how did you deal with the like, no, I swear, I'm going to be good at this? What did you change over the years? Did you keep oh, believing? Yeah, so I, I'd say my biggest help there, which is also sometimes a hindrance is that I've always been extremely incremental with my goal setting, um, almost like a head in the sand, staring down at my feet kind of approach, where I'm never really looking beyond the next race or the next season. So it's an accomplishment for me to periodize my season and lay it out as a plan. I'm not someone who operates on some grand five-year plan to try and win Kona in five years. I'm not. I'm never thinking beyond the next year, really. So I'm keeping doors open, uh, obviously, but um, I'm very much focused on the next very incremental little goal. The challenge is that sometimes when that schedule gets accelerated or without my against my will, let's say, it's really challenging when I'm thrust into a situation that feels like it's not such an incremental leap. And that was like going to Kona for this first time without ever ever having been there to study the race. It was like this huge leap from, you know, winning these admittedly B-level Ironmans to suddenly being on the most competitive Ironman on the planet uh, with all the fanfare that accompanies it. I was very ill-equipped to handle that for a myriad of reasons, some of which we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. So that was an example of um, my incremental approach failing. But over the first few years of my career, it certainly was a helpful thing. Okay. So for the first few years, you just little goal by little goal. What would be an example? What's like, what's your next little goal? Oh, my next little goal. Okay, so I just actually had an opportunity to do a physically distanced race on Friday, which was really cool. That was a great little stepping stone to kind of, you know, reset my season here and get me motivated again. There's actually an ITU race in two weeks um, put on by the same race organizer, Barry Shepley, C3. It's a little club here, like really small prize money, physically distanced, no big fans or anything like that. Um, so I might actually do the first ITU race in my career. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> this petrified my notoriously poor bike handling skills. I don't want to crash out like the pack or something. That would be embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, interesting. But is it going to be only Canadians or are they going to get international yep. athletes? No Americans. No, uh, 
these races have all been Canadians. And thankfully here in Ontario, uh, we've got a pretty stellar list of athletes. So that's um, not been a, not been a problem really to get a good pro field together. Got it. All right. So you, um, obviously you are based in Ontario. You do a lot of your training indoors in the winter, right? Uh, yeah, out of necessity. I'm not really a big fan of training camps. So good six months of the year here, there's there's snow on the ground or cold temps. So I'm definitely on the trainer and treadmill a lot. Although this year with the, you know, the community centers and gyms being closed, pools being closed, I've been training outside more than ever. And it's kind of given me a new lease on life with respect to my attitude around training. So uh, I'm going to be making an effort to get outside more. I'm not going to be the dude who does all his training in his basement anymore. Okay. All right. <laughs> so you're going to go out in the snow, like on your bike. We'll see. Yeah, I took my dad's fat bike out actually on the weekend and that was really, really fun. That was like a different sport entirely than what I'm used to. <laughs> why uh, Why aren't you a fan of training camps? Why not go to like a, you know, Tucson or Bend or wherever? I've uh, been there, done that. I did, did some training camps in Arizona with, with Ventum and Scottsdale and then in the Woodlands, Texas mm-hmm. with uh, Matt Hansen, Jocelyn McCauley several years ago. And they were really fun experiences, but um they were social, they were like good times, but it didn't result in me getting fitter and mm-hmm. better at sport. So I'm in this to be the best pro I can be, you know, not, not necessarily have the most fun all the time. <laughs> Sometimes the two are not always aligned. So training camps, really good time, not necessarily the most productive for me uh, in terms of furthering my career. I find um, when I'm out of my normal environment, I don't sleep as much and I tend to lose weight because I'm not eating as consistently in my normal routine. So that's something maybe I could work on, but there's nothing beats eating your own food at home, sleeping in your own bed and just grinding away. And thankfully Guelph where I live is a fantastic training environment. I've got Jackson Laundry and Taylor Reed here in town, a whole bunch of other ITU athletes and other long course guys who are knocking on our door in terms of fitness, no shortage of training partners. Yeah. Four months of the year, it's pretty snowy, but that's uh that imposes a natural level of periodization. That's not actually a bad thing, I would argue. Okay, so that's, I was going to say, why why stay in Ontario? But it sounds like it's your place. It's why move? Is your... Yeah, I mean, my, my partner's here as well. We've been together for five years. Uh, I don't think it would be good for our relationship to spend a bunch of time apart. So that's a variable <laughs> as well. Like, believe it or not, it's a pretty single-minded career in pursuit of triathlon. But you still have to have some element of balance in your life. And when I'm in a, when I'm at a training camp, it's easy for that balance to shift really out of whack where it's like 24 seven triathlon. And mm-hmm. um, that starts to stress me out pretty quickly. I find. Really? Okay. Yeah. I also like we did a, when we did the profiling recently, we had like a day in your life. You also went to bed at like a normal person time, like 11 midnight, not like <laughs> 8 PM. And I was like, Oh, well then. Yeah. That's really shifted over the years. In university, I had really bad insomnia. Um, and I'd go to bed really early. Then I'd wake up at like three and do all my best work and training before the sun even rose, which was like utterly crazy. It put me a good eight hours offset from a typical university student schedule. Um, my boyfriend is on the other extreme. He goes to bed at like, he used to go to bed at three. So now we, we joke, we kind of met in the middle. Like we go to bed around midnight or one, which is pretty late for a pro triathlete. But it's just a natural rhythm for me now. Like it's really nice to have the luxury to have, be able to start my day whenever I feel like it once I get up. I'm big on not over scripting the following day. I like to keep things pretty spontaneous the next day. So I have a, a little bullet journal or a post-it and I have my priority list for the day. Um, in terms of how that unfolds, I'm not too particular. Um, so I actually avoid scheduling any commitments huh. before noon, which is a real luxury <laughs> in my career. I know like you, you laugh at it, but sleep, I consider sleep the absolute best use of my time. Like literally no exaggeration. If I have planned a 7 a.m. swim, I don't set an alarm. If I happen to sleep through it, I pat myself on the back because I've made better use of my time by sleeping. As a recovering insomniac, I can say with certainty, like any hour I bank of extra sleep is better than an extra hour of training. 
And that's I, been like a 10 year experiment in my life. All right. I should feel really good about sleeping through my bike ride this morning. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you should celebrate that. I'm a big, big napper as well. Um, but I would say things got a little out of whack, like leading into Mont Tremblant last year. I was a good race, but I'm honestly still scratching my head over some of the elements of the prep. Obviously, some things I got right, but my I, I kind of adopted this like a, a real backlash against scheduling my day. I went to the other extreme where I was like, I'm just going to let things unfold however I feel like. I'm going to eat whenever I feel like. I'm going to sleep whenever I feel like and train whenever I feel like. So I started doing I was doing some workouts at like midnight and <laughs> sleeping until like one the next day. And I just started to feel like a, a literal insane person. So I had to knock that off. That was a little too far to that extreme. Yeah, I could see that because then you have to start the race when the race starts, which is not at 1 p.m. It's at like 6 a.m. Yeah, I was so stressed about like the 7 a.m. start for the race because it's like, oh, I have have to gradually taper back on to the 7 a.m. wake up schedule because I haven't woken up that early in like three months. (laughs) You're like, oh, man. Not a good place to be in before race. (laughs) And so how are you? De- I mean, obviously, we talked a little bit about the pandemic, but it sounds like you're training still, you're starting to do some of these like socially distanced races. But have you been getting into any of the, you know, KOMs, the virtual challenges? How are you like, keeping yourself motivated? Um, I, I did uh, Ironman's VR race number four, mm-hmm. I'll probably do another one. Um, didn't take them too seriously. I'm not super big on VR racing. I've seen a divide among pro traffic. Some people are going full tilt, full tilt with that. Like my best friend, Jack Laundry, he's going crazy racing every series possible. I'm not. Um, I prefer physical in-person races for a lot of reasons. Uh, that's what lights my fire. My play during the pandemic has kind of been to stay in a holding pattern where I'm always maintaining mid-level fitness, which would put me about four to six weeks out from peak fitness. So let's say suddenly the world and the U.S. gets their act together and races are back on in September. I can ramp up to my A game in mid-September from now. So that's been my play. Um, I think we'll be lucky to get any racing in this this year. Perhaps Challenge Daytona in, in December. I'm crossing my fingers for. Right. Um, but yeah. So I think once it's confirmed that we won't be racing this fall, if that ever happens, I'll set my sights on some other goals or stunts or whatever you want to call them. But I'm not going to take the route of a lot of pro tour athletes. I see like Everesting or just doing these insane challenges. I, I just see people like. I mean, far be it for me to criticize what people need to do to stay motivated right now. But from my perspective, I see a lot of pro triathletes like tearing themselves apart to try and demonstrate value to sponsors, to flex on their peers, to prop up their their wilting self-worth. You know, maybe that's a little bit harsh, oh, no. but <laughs> just people like really going going full tilt right now. And I guess that that's to say the least not my approach. Um, I'm just kind of holding steady, not trying to go crazy with uh, training a load or anything like that. Yeah, I think the hard thing right now is not knowing if there are going to be races in September or October, right? The uncertainty is killer. If you told me back in March that we, we wouldn't be racing this entire year, my, my year would have unfolded in a very different way. What's made this so challenging from a training periodization standpoint, but also from a mental health standpoint, is just not knowing, you know, that's that's been a real theme this year, the uncertainty. And that's something I've been struggling with a lot. What do you think? I mean, assuming we get back to racing and next year proceeds, you know, somewhat as planned, what are kind of your goals? You said, you know, you think in incremental steps. What are your incremental steps for the rest of this year for next year? Good question. I think um, Challenge Roth would be a great incremental step towards an eventual goal of a really strong Kona performance. That's kind of the next rung up the ladder. Um, maybe regional championships as well. I had signed up for St. George, which is still on the calendar, I believe, surprisingly, for September. Yeah. Um, that one would be hard to believe if that goes off. Uh, so, yeah, I, I need to step up and target some bigger races. It's been a fair criticism of my career that I've sometimes shied away from racing the very best, deepest fields. Uh, that's kind of been part of my incremental approach. I don't regret it because... I made a name for myself winning these B-level races, um, but it's time to step up now. I don't want to do that for the rest of my career. I'd rather, you know, be on the podium third place at a bigger race than 
win another Chattanooga or something. I see. I was going to ask you, which one would you rather do? So there you go. You just. Well, it's, uh, I mean, winning an Ironman will never lose its luster, um, but it, 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 winning a 70.3 or a mid-level Ironman isn't the thrill it once was. And so I want to <laughs> taste that feeling. You know, you need a bigger and bigger dose of that hit to, uh, to feel good about it. Unfortunately, though, the economic incentives in our sport are still aligned to kind of push people to smaller races. Hmm. So I make more money winning a C-level 70.3 um, just in bonuses and stuff than I would from from like in some cases coming third or fourth or fifth at a huge Ironman. So even 10th place at Kona, like I made to put numbers on it, like winning Mont Tremblant at the time um, was around a $30,000 payday all in with bonuses and prize money, which is a fair bit for me, you know, given what I make. That's like way more than 10th place at Kona. 10th place at Kona all in with appearance bonuses and everything is, if I'm lucky, half that. Hmm. That's a really stilted incentive structure in our sport. So that's a bit of a problem. I can see from the sponsor perspective how it's a lot more marketable when an athlete wins a race. How do they leverage a 10th place at Kona? It's just not as exciting. But, um, yeah, the incentive structure is kind of perverse to me and doesn't align with, uh, you know, the thrill I get, my intrinsic reward system from my performances. You're talking about bonuses and sponsors because the prize money for some of these smaller races is, like, pretty small. Yeah, when I say all in, I think the prize purse at Tremblant for the win is around 12K US. And then a well-established pro like me might double or even triple that now at the stage. Um, I imagine pros who are even deeper into their career and even more household names might even quadruple or quintuple that. It wouldn't surprise me. Why so then? Sorry, I was thinking about what you said about Kona not being worth it then, but every all the pros go to Kona because they're sponsored, you know, they have to. If they don't, like, they'd be weird. Why do they do it then? That's a great question. That's a question I've been asking again and again. It's kind of a point <laughs> I've been railing on. Um, good for Ironman. They've managed to, with very little outlay of money, in terms of prize money and appearance fees and that, establish a system where pros go to Kona for the same reason age groupers do, because they're kind of tilting at windmills and it's just uh, something they want to do, a bucket list item. Um, that's never really been my motivation. I'm not saying I'm purely driven by money, far from it, um, but I've always thought it's a little messed up that the economic incentives there don't really make sense for a lot of pros. I can see how it's changing now. Like already, I'm securing some contracts that pay me just to show up in Kona. So I've kind of challenged some partners to, you know, put their money where their mouth is. If Kona is an important event for them for me to be there, uh, recognizing it's an expensive trip and the opportunity cost is quite high. Maybe the, the cost is me winning another Ironman like Chattanooga, which is often the same weekend or close. Um, then they should pay an appearance fee just to be there. And so people are more amenable to that now because it's a huge content creation opportunity and a huge marketing opportunity just to be on the island. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's not happening this year. And I... And you kind of mentioned this before very early on, like you've lost 40 to 50% of your income this year. I would imagine a lot of pros are losing a lot of their income, like 40 to 50% is probably about right, like normal. Yeah, this would have hit me way harder earlier in my career before I had well-established contracts that paid base salaries. Now I'm able to pull in, oh, in US dollars, it's probably, I've always put, been comfortable putting numbers on it. It's probably in the range of like 50 to 60,000 uh, US in base salaries, maybe 50 or something this year. And uh there's no bonuses being made. There's no prize money being made. Um, with some other little content pieces I'm doing and, and appearance fees and stuff, it's a comfortable level of income. You know, it's less than I was making in previous years, but with a frugal lifestyle, I'm not really sweating it a lot. Earlier in my career, before I had good contracts like that, I would have been really struggling to get by this year because I relied a lot more heavily on bonuses and prize money. If a sponsor is partnering with a new, relatively new athlete without a proven track record, they're more inclined to give a contract that leans heavily on the bonuses because it's less risk for them. The athlete only gets rewarded if they perform well or hit certain targets. I can see why they do that, um, but it definitely makes it tougher for an up-and-coming pro. 
So I really like my hat goes off to PTO for paying out bonuses and, you know, rolling out some programs to help um, the entire pro field, not just the, the top heavy group that's already doing really well. Yeah, I am. I am curious how we're going to see this play out like next year, the year after with the up and coming pros who basically didn't have a year this year and some people who may retire soon. I don't think we know yet like what's going to happen. We've already seen some retirement, but my prediction is we're going to see unprecedented retirement, illness, injury, burnout from people trying to get back at it too quickly and stuff. So I think there will be ripple effects from this uh, for years to come. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sad about that. But it'll on the other hand, it's maybe you could argue it's a bit of a Darwinian survival of the fittest process where it'll whittle things down to only the people who are the most committed to the sport. I don't totally agree with that view because. I know there are a lot of very, very committed, hardworking up-and-comers and beginners at, at the elite level who just can't, you know, make rent or something if they're not racing. So right. I, I feel for that group. And um, yeah, it's great. Like the fledgling PTO can really step in, I think, to help to help that group in particular. Um, so it's, I'm, I'm seeing some positive signs. The programs are already talking about and researching to help them out. Oh, okay, well, that's good. What other? What other? I mean, I know some of the things they. I know they paid out bonuses. What other things are they doing? So there's not a lot of specifics yet, but I know they founded a committee on development athletes. I think that was one of the areas they fell a little bit flat on initially. And one thing I like about the PTO is that they're not pretending that they have all the answers. They're not pretending that they have everything right right away. They're very clear that this is a first draft. We're learning. We're listening. That's the important part. So a lot of the athletes who are, say, ranked outside the top 50, initially they only approach, approach the top 20 athletes. I was ranked 19th, so I was kind of in the inner loop on that at first. But a lot of these other athletes felt left out, and I think they read it as kind of rich-get-richer scheme. And it's not going to be like that. So they're listening to that feedback. And now they're, they've been founding committees to talk about ways to help development athletes. And uh, even even like the top take challenge Daytona, for example, the top 40 auto qualify. But now they're adding some wild card slots to help other athletes qualify as well. So that's just one example. Okay. Yeah. And Daytona may be I feel like how everybody thinks it may be the only race that happens this year. So. Yeah, yeah. Now, that said, like, I think development's great. Um, really, really important. Uh, I think there are probably too many pro athletes in the world right now. My perhaps somewhat self-centered view is that I'd rather see 200 men and 200 women making a good living than 500 men and women eking out a living, you know? So I think I would love to see an organization like the PTO set an international standard for what it means to get a pro card. Right now it's a patchwork of different rules by nationality. And some countries it's a discretionary process or the bar is just set too low in my opinion. And one solution I propose is having a tiered structure where you have like a, a minor league kind of system mm-hmm. and then feeds into a major league system. Other sports have proven that cycling as a category system. So it's not um, you know unprecedented at all. It's kind of crazy that we have absolute green beginners at the pro level racing veterans of our sport. Oh yeah. I've always thought we need a category system like, like cycling has because on the other hand it's also crazy that people keep raising i mean this happens in the women's field that people keep raising age group who've qualified to race elite many times like there should be an in-between yes. there should be that like in-between thing like go yeah, it sounds like preaching to the choir here yeah you're just <laughs> <laughs> okay i mean if, if you were in charge of the sport here's here's how you would do it so <laughs> oh i would not make a good triathlon dictator i don't have my act together enough i just i'm good at spouting ideas not so good on the execution and delivery <laughs> that's so, why i really admire like the people behind the pto who actually it wasn't perfect they're the first to admit that but they actually got off their butts and did something because it was years of people just talking and complaining and half-hearted attempts to get something like this going so i respect the hustle it's also hard to get uh pros all to agree on one thing i think Oh, it's like herding cats. Yeah, we're, I think, inherently independent, selfish, uh, you know, very, very 
um, just individually driven people, individualistic, I think is the word. Right. You're trying to think of a nice way to say self-centered, weren't you? Yes. Self-absorbed <laughs> for sure. Yeah. The good ones just learn how to hide it a little bit. So what do you, obviously you have this science background. How much longer are you planning on being a pro triathlete? Are you ever going to go back and be an academic, a researcher? That's a million dollar question. And, um, I'd be lying to say I didn't struggle with that question this year. You know, it was kind of like this, you could interpret this as a cosmic sign that it was time to move on if you buy into that worldview. Um, so I realized that I could leave the sport right now and I have other cool opportunities fall into my lap. I have a couple standing job offers, um, that were really intriguing. I could go back to my consulting work. I could work for a couple sponsors. I could coach, uh, but I'd leave the sport with regrets and I just don't want to do that. I don't want to let 10 or five or 10 years slip by and still be scratching my head asking what if, um, like my, my performance at Trombone last year was really encouraging and heartening for a lot of reasons, but I still, like I said, feel like the prep was suboptimal. So it makes me wonder with optimal prep, how much faster could I go? What, what else can I do? What's, what stone has been left unturned here? So that's, what's keeping me in the sport. It's almost the negative slant on it, I guess, is fear of regret. Um, I hate to say I'm motivated by fear, but I do not want to leave the sport with regret. Okay. So usually we would end with, I've been ending with a would you rather, but now I feel like what I really want to know is what would you regret? Like what, like, have you regretted in the sport? I would say I don't ever want to be half-assing it. And over the last couple of years, I felt like I'm doing a mediocre job on the business side, a mediocre job on the racing side and a mediocre job at other aspects of my life. I want to go full tilt with the racing side and see what's left to give. Okay. Okay. I, I hope I hope it I hope you don't have any regrets. So it all works out. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us. And obviously, um, I think everyone appreciates your candor. So thanks so much. I appreciate the platform. It's been an interesting year to try and stay relevant as a pro triathlete. So uh, keep up the good content. <laughs> I could see that. Yeah. Thanks to Cody and Chris for the honesty. Thanks to our whole staff for their work. And thanks to all of you for listening. Stay tuned next week for some exciting news from Triathlete.